yeah, I didn't want the job. Nobody wanted that job. I swear to you, nobody. And I, you know, I honestly, I've said this before, I think I was the only person in the interview. And in the interview, I said I didn't want the job. Yeah. Like, it was a strange interview. Like, half the interview, I'm saying I don't want the job. Then the other half of the interview, he's answering the questions. But it was, for me, it felt like an ex we knew we had an experiment. It was just an experiment in the sense, like, what happens? Like, what if we actually gave information we were giving prime ministers and finance ministers? Like, just not political information, but just, like, boring, account, you know, numbers. This is what this could cost. Wars, fighter planes, crime bills, changes to old age security. What if we put together a team of people? So we actually, we gave them everything like documents, like thick documents, and you know, with executive summaries and people's names on them and they were peer reviewed, like how would that play out? What happens, would they be able to hold the executive to account? You're listening to a special episode of On The Record Off Script, the podcast. My name is Mark Coffin and I'm one of the hosts. On this week's special episode, we'll share excerpts from a talk given by Kevin Page, the first ever and now former Parliamentary Budget Officer for Canada. Kevin Page spoke at the Springtide Better Politics Awards in March in Halifax of this year. Now, before we dive into this week's episode, we'd like to extend an invitation to you to be part of the special episodes of the Offscript podcast. We know Nova Scotia politics is about much more than just what we hear from MLA, so we're also interested in hearing your own stories. Have you worked in and around politics? Maybe you haven't, but you've engaged in politics enough to collect a story worth telling. Do you have an interesting story to tell from the war room, the campaign trail, or the doorstep? To give you a sense of the kind of stories we're looking for, we want to stay true to the spirit of the podcast. On the record and off script, we want to tell the untold, unspoken, but meaningful accounts of Nova Scotian politics. Short is good, less than five minutes is best. We also like funny, but it doesn't need to be funny. So as long as it's something we can all learn from and walk away feeling a little more informed about how our democracy and politics works in Nova Scotia, we want to hear it. So if you've got a story in mind, you can share it a few ways. If you share it via email, someone from the Offscript team may read it on air, and you can reach us at offscript at springtidecollective.ca. That's all one word, offscript at springtidecollective.ca. Or you can share your story over the phone with the Offscript voicemail. Dial the main Springtide line, 902-989-3668, and select extension 101 and share away. You'll just get our voicemail. We can't promise that we'll be able to do something with every story we get in response, but we will read and listen to all of them. All right, here's this week's podcast. Oh, and a heads up. In his speech, Kevin makes a few references to a place just off the stage with his hands, which obviously you can't see because you're only listening. Uh, but if you were in the room, you'd know that there is an artist from the company Brave Space named Isabel Chender who was live illustrating his speech. So when he says her or the cartoonist, that's who he's talking about. All right, here you go. Wow, this is amazing. Thank you. So I'm humbled to be here, truly humbled. And uh, to be part of this process where you celebrate better politics. And um, I'd like to talk about three things tonight. Uh, number one, I want, I'm here to support Springtide Collective. And I just think it's important that we celebrate, you know, democratic politics in, in Canada and particularly in Nova Scotia. I love the way they do it. I want to talk about that. Uh, and I just, you know, I want to be here with this party for the, all the nominees and, and to celebrate you know, them in this Better Politics Award. So I came for the party. <laughs> 
Number two, if, you, if I could, I'd like just to share some observations in, in that spirit of better politics about you know, the state of play in Ottawa these days. You know, since October 2015, the election, but even, even in the context of around the election and kind of going forward. So just some personal observations about the state of politics and policies. Because I think it is kind of connected to better politics. And, and finally, if, if it's okay, just share a few lessons from my own experiences as, you know, that, as Mark said, I was the priority budget officer. So what was that like? And you know, I'm sure some of these lessons are probably sound pretty familiar to the nominees. Not that I deserve any kind of awards, I don't, but you know, just it's that same experience of trying to bring about positive change and working with our political system. So a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I, was, uh, I had this moment, like I always have moments, and uh, well, not always, but sometimes. And um, you know, I just I found myself like watching TV, like you folks always do. You know, I come home from work, I teach at a university. You know, marking some papers or whatever. Turn on CNN. You know, listen to Wolf or Anderson Cooper, Wolf Blitzer, Anderson Cooper, and then you know, they, all of a sudden they kick in, and then there's the CN, CNN Republican debates which have been hard to watch, right? <laughs> but it's like, you know, for like some TV, you don't know why you watch it, but you still watch it because you can't believe it could be that bad. <laughs> and, but they never surprise you. Like, and, and so um, I remember, you know, and getting a little bit disappointed. And this is like, and this is well after our 2015 election. I was worried about the country. Honestly, I'm sure a lot of you folks were. I just didn't like the politics. It wasn't partisan in the sense, like, and I voted conservative in the past. I you know, voted Liberal, I voted NDP, I voted Green Party, and we'll see if the marijuana party comes, makes it, once we legalize it, whether they have a political party, maybe I'll vote for them. <laughs> but it was just, I didn't like the direction. And then you, you watch the stuff, they're playing out this, this type of politics playing out in the Republican debates, and I didn't like it. And it, almost every, next morning I wake up, I, 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 start, I read the local paper, then I, I have on my iPad, I do actually have an iPad, even though I write down things on notes. And I you know, read various newspapers, and I love reading the New York Times, and there's one editorialist, David Brooks, you can always guarantee he's going to beat up on the Republicans, even though he's kind of a conservative, and he's just not happy with the state of politics. So I read his piece, and I'm reading it, and he talks about this book, you know, In Defense of Politics, which was written by a fellow named um, Crick. Probably somebody already knows. I've written it down here somewhere. Bernard Crick. It was written in 1962, and he was quoting. He's, you know, David Brooks is a good writer. He's, you know, he's often on these sort of Charlie Rose shows. I love listening to him. He writes in you know, a wide array, and he starts quoting from this book about how important politics is, and how we're forgetting, you know, these lessons and you know, what's at stake here, and these people that actually bring about change. And he's just, and at the same time, he's telling, you know, basically the Republican Party, which I think is his party, this isn't good. And then, you know, then, so I went out, you know, immediately, I got to read the book. So I get the book and, you know, I start reading it and, and it's starting to sink in. And then I, realize, I find out there's another book written, like a 50-year anniversary. It's really more of an essay by this fellow, Matthew uh, Flinders, who wrote this book. He wrote it called Defending Politics in 2012. So then I'm reading that book. This is all within a number of hours. And again, it's, these are more essays than books. So they're not like, you know, these, you know, large books. And then, you know, I get an email from Sarah, Sarah Simpson and Mark Coffin saying, hey, remember, you've got to come to this event. And uh, don't forget, like, it's on such and such date and, you know, the typical efficiency of Springtime Collective. It's here's all your, you know, here's the plane ticket and this is, you know, where you, the hotel you're staying at. Here's the timelines. It's all completely well organized. 
So then I said, well, I got this event coming up, so I hit, you know, go on the website. And I'm looking at the website and I'm seeing, well, what is like the vision and mission of this organization? And I'm, you know, reading, well, making democracy better. I like that, you know, and then, you know, what are they about? And they're about engagement and they're about positive change and they're about celebrating politics that are going here. Then I'm actually going through some of these videos. Now, I've just realized as they're coming on the stage, this is the lady that contributed to those unbelievable creative videos, which I recommend. I think, you know, I would, if I wasn't teaching it, in fact, I might, I'll make sure my students look at some of them. And maybe I'll, I'll test them on some of these videos, which speak to really important things there, institutions and how this stuff is set up. Um, then I start to realize, like, everything I was reading from those books that I really like, like that book by, uh, by, um, by Crick and then the book by Flinders on how to, you know, in defense of politics, it's like embedded into everything I was reading on the website, you know, both, and, and so, like I said, you know, these, these are, this is something special, so if I have, like, my first message is that, you know, and it's really why I'm here, like, we need to support this organization, that this is an organization, Springtime Collective, and I'm looking at this group here, and I've, you know, I've you know, already had a chance to talk with some of you. It's pretty special. Like, you need, to, you need to nurture this organization. You need to protect it. This is, like, I think the second year of these awards. Like, I'm hoping we're still doing these awards 10 years from now. And this continues to grow exactly that was you know, said by our, in the opening address. <laughs>
like, and again, I'm thinking like, this is, again, I'm remembering now in terms of that moment, why I had to read these books, why I even need to be here, because I was feeling so down after I was watching the Republican debates. Um, but they improve people's lives. We wouldn't have these great facilities, including this amazing university, if it wasn't for people coming together, po political people making these decisions, supporting the collective, really, because this is, you know, these are collective goods, right? This is what brings us together. This is what springtime does. And why does springtime, it's springtime collective. So I think reading into, this, reading into its DNA of this organization, to me, it sounds positive. The second message from Crick and Flinders in these books, like to talk about defense of politics or defending politics, is that politics needs revitalization. I mean, that was so clear to me when you watched the Republican debate. They need revitalization. They hopefully will use this as an opportunity to revitalize. For me, that was true with our country last fall, the fall of 2015. We needed to revitalize politics. And you know, the way to, you know, and the way to make politics, like the way to shift politics, to make it politics be, to be more optimistic, and the way to move it away from the politics of pessimism, or you know, the politics of fear, to attack politics, uh, corrosive cynicism, is through education. That's what, it's always education. You know, it's about St. Mary's University, but it's about what Springtime Collective does for us. It's about social dialogue, which is Springtime. It's about engagement. So this is what Springtide lives for. So again, I'm thinking, like, this is why this organization is so important and we need to nurture it and care for it. There's a great quote from Eleanor Roosevelt that I like. It was in the book. It says, better to light a candle than to curse in the dark. <laughs> better to light a candle than to curse in the dark. So when you see these problems with politics and it needs to be revitalized, you need to go to organizations that bring us together so that we can revitalize it. This is revitalization, right here. The stories, not just, it's MLAs, but it's also local politics. It's public interest people trying to make our lives better. That you work with the system to make it better. This is revitalization. This is why I had to be here. Had to be here. Plus, I love coming to Halifax. <laughs> the other thing is, is, this is not a spectator sport, democracy. Like, you cannot turn the other way and say, oh, everything is going to be fine. Like, I think one of our biggest enemies is public apathy. So when I wrote that book, and, and, and I'm not forcing anybody to buy the book, but I'm sure Penguin would be happy. I promise you I'm not getting rich on this book. Uh, but the first title I wanted to call it was The Cost of Indifference. I didn't want to call it Unaccountable. The, you know, the, the publisher said, no, you have to call it Unaccountable. You won't sell any books if you call it The Cost of Indifference. But to me, I worry about public apathy and the sight that, oh, they're political people, they're, you know, they're, they're all like certain senators that are in trial right now, or they're all corrupt, or they can't solve big problems. Then public apathy sets in. Then we're in trouble. So that's why you have to have Springtime Collective to say no. We have so much to be thankful for. So I think, you know, Springtime helps us to be players in the spectator sport. It's not a spectator sport. The other point that Crick makes in his article is that democratic politics will not make every sad heart happy. He said that in 1962. We can't solve every problem. That's not politics. You know, we can't make everybody happy. You know, there will always be sad hearts. But he also said this is the great civilizing human activity. It is politics. It is the, you know, how we come together on these really tough issues and we compromise. And I thought that was beautiful. 
So I think it helps us. I think we need these organizations. We need them more than ever right now because they tell us that as we face some of these bigger challenges, I'm going to talk about them very briefly, like you need to rem we need to remind it that this is not going to be solved by Monday. Republicans are not going to fix their problems by Monday. Um, and so it's going to take time. I and mean, we need to work with it. We can't become disengaged. So just a few, an observation about the state of politics and policy in Ottawa. Because I had that experience. Again, as Mark said, I was a public servant for decades, served, you know, worked in different places. I was actually the Prime Minister Harper's, in fact, is his assistant secretary for macroeconomic policy. So I would work like the Prime Minister's offices in the Langevin building. He was, they were on the first and second floor. I was on the third floor. And so we briefed the Prime Minister every day on the economy. And I did that for two years before I became the Parliamentary Budget Officer. And, but I still, I didn't like the way things were unfolding. I didn't like, yeah, I mean, I really was honored to be Parliamentary Budget Officer, but I didn't like when I was watching the politics. I was not a politician. I was just, I had a calculator. I provided numbers on issues, but I didn't like the way things were, were playing out in the, in the city. I'll talk about that briefly. But I just have this sense right now, and this is not a partisan comment, but I think we are on, potentially on the cusp of positive change. Like, it's not there yet. You can't taste it, but you can see it. At least it's in the language of some of our political leaders. The liberals are bringing it, and it, but you know, just I hope the conservatives revitalize. I hope the NDP revitalize. I hope the Green Party grows. But and I hope we don't lose something that we're starting to talk about right now. You know, it was for me remarkable when the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau said, "I'm bringing back cabinet government." Whoa, cabinet government. So you know, it's not just like the prime minister and the prime minister's office making all the decisions, but we're going to have huge respect for every cabinet minister and what they get to bring to table. So it's really government by the executive, not just the prime minister. Little less authoritarian. I got to be careful because the last time I was in Halifax, it was for a fundraiser, and I said our prime minister was Putinesque, and I didn't realize it, but a cartoonist took that and said. <laughs> And there was a cartoonist and it had like, you know, typical page, bald head, boring, looking in front of a computer. Secretary comes in with a newspaper saying, or not a newspaper, the telephone saying, it's Mr. Putin. He wants to talk to you. He says, he doesn't like to comment. <laughs> That's Nova Scotia, right? They're hard hitters in Nova Scotia. And the cartoonists are the best, obviously, in the world. The website's amazing. I just now I can see the connection with the, you know, and I can't even see what's going on. I'm sure I don't want to see. <laughs> so finally, just like a few lessons learned from the PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Office job. <clears throat> I didn't want it. I have said that yeah, I didn't want the job. Nobody wanted it, honestly. I was again, I was the Prime Minister's assistant secretary at PCO, nice job. I knew, you know, I felt comfortable, I had a great, you know, looked out the window, I could see the Peace Tower. I uh, got to do the briefing, had, could pick up the phone, you know, I asked if we were working on a budget issue, I could phone any department, they said, well, how can we help the Prime Minister? Okay, you know, just that kind of, there's like nobody wanted to be, okay, now we're gonna work for Parliament, we're gonna give parliamentarians information they've never seen before, and we're gonna see how that plays out. Nobody wanted that job, and I swear to you, nobody. And I, you know, I honestly, I've said this before, I think I was the only person in the interview. And in the interview, I said I didn't want the job. <laughs> yeah. And you know, there's people that were there in the interview, like my, one of my former bosses, Don Drummond, who was a great economist, way better than me, and like, he, like it was a strange interview. Like at half the interview, I'm saying I don't want the job, 
then the other half of the interview, he's answering the questions from the... <laughs> um, but it was, for me, it felt like an... Ex- we knew we had an experiment. It was just an experiment in the sense, like, what happens... Like, what if we actually gave information, we were giving prime ministers and finance ministers, like, just not political information, but just, like, boring, you know, numbers. This is what this could cost. Wars, fighter planes, crime bills, changes to old age security. What if instead of, we, you know, in the past we would just give that to the finance minister and the prime minister and they would decide that what actually would trickle out to members of parliament. What if we put together a team of people? So we actually, we gave them everything. Like documents. Like thick documents. And, you know, with executive summaries and people's names on them and they were peer reviewed. Like how would that play out? What happens, would they be able to hold the executive to account? And what happens if we were like created an organization that the next generation, I was talking to some of them here um, before, like, you know, the, just the fellows that just graduated, they actually looked at this organization and say, whoa, that's like, that's like my generation organization. That's not like an old guy generation or old woman generation. This is like, this is like transparent. This is like they're putting work out, they're putting it on the website, they're, you know, they're talking to people, and on every big issue, they would try to be on all the, every big issue. They didn't decide what the issues were, but they would provide information on these issues. And what happens if we try to build a culture within an organization that we weren't cynical? It's not our job to say, go to war, don't go to war, buy a fighter plane, don't buy a fighter plane, but we just provided the analysis. And we didn't opine on whether this was a good decision or not, but at least give them something that they could, they could use, you know, in the context of political accountability. Is this the right priority for the country? Is this the right policy direction? What kind of national defense system do we want? What kind of retirement system do we want? What kind of correctional system? That's not our job. That was the, that's a tough job. That's a political job. And like I said, I didn't want the job. You know, with great humility, I needed to be totally 100% pushed to do the job. And it was people that I had worked with that I started phoning. I said, well, what do you think? Like, if I took this job, would you come? And, you know, these people have names, like Mustafa Skerry, who I, I used to mark papers for him at university, like, 40 years ago. He was finishing his PhD while I was a student. And then Sahir Khan, who, like, I had worked, I had hired to work, basically, was, a, you know, a private sector guy in New York City that wanted to come to Ottawa to raise a family. He was tired of traveling. Yeah. And just, just a terrific kind of, you know, sense for costing and things like that. So they said, no, you've got to do it. We can do it. You know, and Mustafa was an Iranian. I remember when I was studying at Queens, like his, he had part of his family stuck in Iran. And he said, you know, Kevin, I'd like to do something for my country if that's okay with you. That's what he said. I don't care if I get fired. And Sihira said, you know what? Like, I'm Indian. My dad came here. We just want to do something for our country. I'm a private sector guy. Anyways, I'll make money. I don't care. And for me, to be honest, like, I, I, even then I wasn't convinced, but I had suffered this amazing, like, this loss in our family. I lost a son in an accident while I was doing that Privy Council office job. And, uh, like, it just, like, I was, like, really struggling. Like, I, you know, and I didn't, feel, I didn't feel like I fit anymore in the public service. And our family was really hurting. I wasn't sure if I should take the job because our family was hurting so much, or I should take the job and maybe, like, I could help the family somehow by saying, you know, we're not, like, we're not kneeling down here. Like, we're going to get back on our feet. And, you know, I had two younger kids that lost a, a, a brother. So I, I think the lesson I learned from my son, Tyler, was, like, there's no security. Like, you just disappear like that anyway. So what are we fighting for? Like, why don't you go there and give it a try? Which I'm pretty sure everybody that's getting an award here, like, they're trying for something that they feel is really important. 
So like there were three lessons that, you know, that I often think about in terms of quotes. I love quotes. They just sort of stick in my head. And there's one from this British historian, Fuller, Thomas Fuller, who said, everything is difficult before it's easy. Like you always know when you start something, it's going to get hard at the beginning. Like in the interview, I was saying, I don't want the job. I don't want to build an office where I, nobody's going to pick up the phone. I get no information. I don't want to go in front of those committees. They're nasty. You know, I'm not going to get used to that. You know, and I don't want to write reports that everybody's going to read. Like, I got to, that's a hard thing to do. Like, you got to nuance every word. You got to see whether or not, like, you, can you actually do that? I didn't want to do that. But once we got started and this team came, thanks to Mustafa and Sihir, and they would, like, these people are really smart. Like, I'm not. They, these people, like, they know what they're doing and they hire. Everybody wants to work for these people. So they brought a good, they together this good team. Then I got, you can start getting used to it. Like, wait a minute, I can go to committee. And so here was this type of person. He was like literally worked on Wall Street for the better part of 10 years. Like his line as we left the building is, man, Kevin, I could smell napalm. Like this is going to be a great meeting. I said, I said well, you, I'm answering, I have to answer all the questions. Like you're just sitting next to me. He said, oh, this is fantastic. Um, he was quoting from Apocalypse Now. But there was no apocalypse. No apocalypse. Well, at least I didn't think there was. I don't know, maybe Prime Minister Harper thought there was some. <laughs> you know, and then I love the quote from Einstein, in the middle of difficulty you will find opportunity. So like, it, it's, it, can be, it was almost a mindset for the office. So we would start, you know, we would start looking at every issue, like secrecy. Like there was a complete, that the whole town was shut down, it seemed like, under Prime Minister Harper. Information, like they knew if the parliament, when, I, when I, I asked for information, it was like news within the Privy Council office and the finance department and they had to manage it and we got nothing. And so we said like, oh, this is going to be really cool. Like we'll just find a way to be like, their secret will be like the most transparent anybody's ever seen. Like everything we actually do, we'll do, we'll put on the website. Even if we write a letter to a deputy minister saying we need information, he comes back and says, you can't have it. It's going on the website. Like, we'll be so, everything we do, that you went for a trip, we're putting it on the website. Every paper had to go on the, and it's still there. We never took it off. So for us, like, you, you got secrecy, we'll give you transparency. There's a Seinfeld program like that. George does it. Uh, you know, George is like, you know, he just finally admits in Seinfeld that, you know, he was like, his life isn't really working, so he's just going to try the opposite. And it turned out, like, telling you know, really attractive women that you live at home and you have no job really was going to work. And it actually did work for George. <laughs> and then, like, complexity is a tough issue. Like, how do you cost a war? Like, what's your behind your calculations for death and disability? Like, how do you cost an airplane? Like, how do you, what do you estimate for, like, acquisition cost, operation sustainment cost? What's the difference between that and a CF-18? Like, how do you cost a crime bill? You know, a Truth in Sentencing Act, when you have more people that are, you know, they, they lose this remand system. So then all of a sudden we're saying, like, that's complexity. That could, that's scary. But then you say, you know what, this is like an amazing opportunity. We're going to have to learn how to write. We have to have executive summaries that explain this stuff to people. Like, what's behind these numbers? And we can never pretend that we know the number. So this is like, even for economists, this is an opportunity to talk about putting numbers out, ranges of numbers, uncertainty. So we said, well, complexity, that's actually, we could, we could work with that. We could we'll fight it with, you know, with, with good descriptions. Minority parliament, which is scary because every financial bill is a vote of confidence. A government could fall. In our very first year, Prime Minister Par Harper had to prorogue parliament so it didn't fall. 
And, you know, so it just like, it was just, that's the nature. So you've got to be on your game in a minority parliament. You can't put out crap that somebody's going to use and say, well, I'm sorry, I got the number wrong. But the government just fell. Like, you can't do that. So it's like a minority parliament were even an advantage. We had a big recession in 2009, like a world financial crisis. All of a sudden, we started saying, this is great. The economy's collapsing. They need us. Like, everything kind of turned around saying, we'll find some way. They cut our budget by a third. We're saying, this is awesome. They cut our budget. Now we get to go to committee and say, we're shutting down the office. Like, they don't want information. You don't want it. If I don't have any clients, we're out of here. I'll go do something else. We have a really strong team. They all, they all have other jobs. And then we had like a budget 2012 when the government said, now that they had a majority, you know what, we could freeze spending for like five years and there's no impact. We could freeze spending in veterans, there's no impact. And we're saying, whoa, show us how you do that. They say, we're not giving you that information. So your job is not to see how money's not spent. We're not, we're taking that money away. So no, no, we did stimulus analysis. We're going to do austerity analysis. No, you can't do that. So we're saying, okay, we'll see you in court. Because my mandate is in the act of parliament. That's the law of the land. We could even test them. Everything. So in the, Einstein, in the middle of difficulty, you see opportunity. A hundred years ago, Einstein thought, maybe if we had two black holes and they came close together, we'd have something called gravitational waves. That guy was smart. <laughs> he wasn't even an economist. <laughs> Just think of what kind of economist he could be. I would have hired him. Then there's this last quote I'm giving to the end, I promise you. And George Bernard Shaw, there is no progress without change. Like, you, you know, these folks that are here today that are getting these awards, all the nominees, they want change. They know they have, they're trying to fix stuff. Um, you know, and we have, we have to fix things. We need to revitalize politics. We have systems in Ottawa that don't work. We have documents that are gutted. There's no information in them. Um, you know, even like the legislation for the Parliamentary Budget Office, it's not like a big deal, but you know what? We have a government now that says it wants to strengthen the office, make it an officer of parliament, uh, give it better access to information, get help, use this office to help cost opposition platforms. And they, they say they're going to do this over the next, you know, their mandate in the next four years. So maybe that's change, right? There, maybe that's, there's this opportunity of progress. So I like that, this other quote, and I'm done. I like that, you try, you fail. You try again, you fail better. <laughs> you just keep going. You don't know whether there's gonna be success, right? Not everybody's gonna win. There's all the nominees are heroes here tonight. So let's work to support Springtime Collective. That's one of the reasons why I came here. Let's celebrate democratic politics in Nova Scotia. You know, otherwise you can have the Republican Party in the States, right? <laughs> Let's thank all our nominees. The best times are ahead. If you revitalize politics, I think the chances of the best times ahead for the next generation are much better. Thank you very much. That was Kevin Page speaking last March at the Springtide Better Politics Awards in Halifax. You can hear his full speech as well as lots of archived content from Springtide on the Springtide YouTube channel at youtube.com slash springtideco. Thank you for listening to the Offscript Podcast. We are back again next Tuesday with another special episode, and we're back 
with a new full episode of the regular podcast on January 10th. You can find shareable versions of any episode you hear on the podcast by visiting audioboom.com slash offscript. Those versions share right in Facebook where your friends can play them straight from their newsfeed. Until next week.